I'm glad to uh, be back, and Lord willing, this evening we'll talk about the trip, and I'll try to give some more information about the things that went on. It was a very good trip, probably the best uh, that I've taken overall, I think, and uh, very encouraging, and I appreciate very much your prayers and your uh, involvement in, in what was done. Would you turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 3? We started a series of lessons on this book uh, a few weeks ago, and I'd like to continue that. God had said that he would drive the nations out of the land as the people went in to inherit it, and he commanded the people wage war against the nations and exterminate them. But they didn't. Let's start in Judges chapter 2 and verse 20. Judges 2.20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamon. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. I'd like to start there, and we'll deal with a couple of more sections of this before the lesson is over. But when God told them to drive the nations out of the land, they disregarded God and what he said. God warned them that these nations would influence them to do evil, but they didn't listen. And so God decided he'd just leave those nations in the land To test the people. To test whether or not the next generation would fulfill the task that God had given. To test and see whether or not they would be influenced by the presence of those nations in the land. And whether or not they would trust in God to wage war with them and to conquer those nations. Basically, God was unwilling to do for them what they were unwilling to do for themselves. He had plenty of power. If they had been willing, he would have driven those nations out. Since they were not willing, he left them in there. It was a test. I wonder how similar we are to the nations of Israel, to the nation of Israel. In Matthew 6.13, in the Lord's Prayer, he prayed, and, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we know that God has the power to defeat sin in our lives, to drive the sin out. We know that we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on his armor 
And we can win the war against Satan, against temptation, against sin. Ephesians chapter 6. But God intends for us to be an active participant in driving the sin out of our life. He tells us, for example, to flee immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. To flee from these things, the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.11. To flee youthful lusts. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22. Now, if we don't flee, do we think we can just expect him to defeat the sin in our life anyway? God tells us to make no provision for the flesh that we would fulfill its lusts. Romans chapter 13, talking about sensual temptation, drunkenness, and strife and jealousy. God tells us to set our mind on pure things. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. God has given us certain things to help and strengthen us. Like his word that David said he'd hid in his heart that he might not sin against God. Psalm 119. God has warned us to watch ourselves because evil companions corrupt good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33. God has the strength to run sin out of our life. God has the strength to deliver us from evil and not to lead us into temptation. God has the power to help us resist the evil one. The shield of faith, Ephesians 6.16, to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. God has the power to defeat sin in our life. But just like the Israelites, if we don't listen to his warnings, and we do not do what he tells us to do, then he's not going to do for us what we are unwilling to do for ourselves. He'll leave that sin and that temptation right there in our life to test us and ultimately to defeat us. Think about a couple of specific applications. Think about... Sexual sins. And, and perhaps why in, among so many brethren, and perhaps among many of us, they are so hard to defeat. Why do we struggle so much with them? Well, I wonder, is the problem with the strength of the Lord? Surely it's not. That's not the problem. Is the problem that the armor he gave us just is not sufficient to ward off those fiery darts? Surely that's not the case. The problem if we struggle and fall in these areas is perhaps we're not fleeing. Perhaps instead of trying to get away from those things, we inch ever closer. Perhaps the problem is who we're with and what we talk about and, and what we fill our minds with, the things we watch, the things we allow ourselves to think about. Perhaps the problem is how much we're praying and studying and filling our minds with the positive, righteous things that we hide in our heart not to sin against God. Certainly, we can't avoid being tempted. We will be tempted. Jesus was. But when we find ourselves constantly falling, the problem is not with the strength of God. The problem is, is with our doing what he tells us to do in fighting the temptation. Or think about 
the temptation that so many of us struggle with to be angry improperly, to be impatient. And again, do we flee from the strife and the jealousy that's mentioned in Romans 13? What do we dwell on mentally? Do we feed our anger and our impatience? How much do we feed ourselves with God's word? How much do we pray? How much do we turn to him and take advantage of his strength? And those are just two illustrations you can add to the list. Think about the areas of your life in which you're constantly being defeated by sin, in which Satan seems to gain the upper hand over and over and over again. And as we think about those things, we recognize that the Lord has the power to defeat those enemies. He has the power to give us the victory in those temptations. And when I'm not gaining the victory, then I know it's not because of him. It's because I'm not listening to his warnings. It's because as the Israelites left those nations in the land, the Lord says, okay, I won't drive them out there. And if we allow ourselves to leave those sins in our heart, then the Lord will say, okay, I won't drive them out there. Then look at chapter 3. Judges 3 and verse 5. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. It seems to me that there are three basic steps here in their fall. First, They lived among the Canaanites. Secondly, they married them. And thirdly, they served their gods. And that was the downfall of Israel from the time of the judges until the time of the captivity. And it was always that pattern. They lived among them, they married them, and they served their gods. Now I'd like to make an application of that with you if I could. And I'd like to make an application, the application I'd like to make is to the, what I think is probably the main idol that we serve. You know, when we talk about idolatry in the Old Testament, a lot of times we may feel fairly uh, secure about that. You know, we've never carved ourselves an idol, an image out of uh, some stick of wood to bow down to it. But it seems to me like we do have our own idols and that the main one is our greed and our success mentality that we have in the world. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 both identify covetousness as idolatry. And 1 Timothy 6 talks about how those who desire to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many evil and harmful desires. And how that the root of all evil is the love of money. That we ought to be content with what we have. But the, the dominant idol in our society is, is, is greed, is money, the love of money, the desire for success and status. And, and you know, to impress others with the idea that we are successful, prosperous people. Now think about how that cycle operates with that idol. First, we live among the world. We constantly listen to worldly philosophies about those things. We listen to how, at school, they teach us 
how we need to be successful and how we need to make a lot of money and how we need to have a good, important career. We listen to our friends and they tell us the same thing to our family members and they look down on us. If we're not successful, if we've not climbed the corporate ladder, we listen to our neighbors. And after all, they have this and they have that and they have something else. They have a new car and they have a, a big screen TV and they have, you know, redecorated the house and they have new furniture and they have the latest toys and gimmicks and gadgets. And we want them too. We listen to our co-workers. And as we, as we live, in the world, pretty soon our main goals become material. Our dreams, our daily focus becomes the stuff in this life. You know, it, it, it's, it's a subtle thing. It's a, it's a very slow process. But our values are gradually transformed. And the thing that we really want most is stuff and success. You know, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And he constantly talked about being in Christ. But I think sometimes we're more in the world than in Christ. The Israelites were more in the Canaanites than they were in the Lord. And if we're not careful, we live in the world. We surround ourselves with worldly thinking and the wants and desires and the lifestyle and the goals of the world begin to shape our own thinking. And so that's the first step. We live in the world and then we intermarry. Maybe literally. <laughs> Obviously those that we marry have a great impact on our life. But we don't have to marry the world to become intimate and close with those who make us think in wrong ways. When our best and closest relationships are with the people of the world, and when the people we listen to the most are the people of the world, it has a very damaging effect on, on what we serve, on who our gods really are. They don't have to be awful people. You know, sometimes we think worldly people, oh, that's the scum. You know, the dope heads and, and the drunks and, and these folks who are just constantly just throwing their life away with just totally scummy, awful, terrible stuff. Oh, I'm not in the world. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have friends like that. Oh, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even look their way. But, but I don't think those are the temptations that most of us are the most susceptible to. It's the respectable worldly people. It's the more subtle idolatry of, of money and the love of money and the desire for success. Those are the things. Those are the ways the world influences us. You know, I, I think the devil influences, a whole lot, influences us a whole lot more with, with seductive worldly friends. That their worldliness is not in just scummy stuff, but is in having that other God. The idol of greed. It's really important for us to have our closest relationships be relationships with those who love God, who really love him. You can contrast those first few chapters of the book of Acts talking about 
talk a lot about how the early Christians were together so much. How they had everything in common. How they prayed together and they worshipped together. They even eat, ate their meals together. They, they allowed each other to influence each other. Versus a passage like James 4 that talks about how friendship with the world is enmity with God. Who do we listen to? Who are our closest friendships with? Who, who are the people that are giving us advice the most? Who tends to most shape our goals and our lifestyle? And so first we live in them. And then we intermarry either literally or figuratively, and then we serve their gods. We come to the point where what we value most is money and prestige and status and stuff and career and education and personal achievement and being successful in the way the world looks at success. And you know, the subtle thing about what happened to the Israelites is they didn't quit worshiping God. And so they thought they were okay. They just added all those other gods of those nations. And there's a lot of people who go to church every Sunday. But their God is greed. Their God is worldly success and achievement. Because what ends up happening is that the things we can touch and feel and hold mean a whole lot more to us than the God who's invisible. And we can even get to the point where saying things like this almost seems to betray everything that we value. <laughs> you know, we, we've almost come to the point, I think, at times where if somebody says, you know, these things really aren't what's important, we almost become defensive and say, yes, they are too. Don't you tell me they're not. Don't you tell my kids they're not. This is what we want. And we've allowed the world to shape our thinking more than what we think it has. That's what happened to them. They didn't drive out those nations. And those nations ended up dominating the Israelites in terms of how they thought. And God had to punish them over and over again. And that's the final passage I want us to look at. Let me do something before we do, though. The overall structure of the book of Judges to me, it's more or less like this. Chapter 1, 1 to 3, 6 is more or less the introduction to the book. What we just looked at and those sorts of things, how they didn't drive out those nations. In chapter 3, 7 to 16, the end, whatever that uh, verse is, is, is the cycles of judges. And we're going to look at the first one of those just now. And then, chapter 17 to 21 are uh, sort of uh, like an appendix to the book. Some other examples that show how bad they've gotten because they did what was right in their own eyes instead of following the Lord. Look at this first cycle. Chapter 3, verse 7. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. 
When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. Then the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Here's the pattern. They abandon the Lord and do evil. God is angry and delivers them into the hand of an oppressing nation. They cry out to God for relief. And God sends a deliverer who liberates them from the hand of the oppressing nation. And they have rest for a period of time. And then they do evil. And God raises up another nation to oppress. And they cry out to God. And God sends a deliverer to deliver them. And they have rest. And then they are evil. And that cycle repeats itself. That full cycle. Six times in the book of Judges. And each time... In general, at least, the cycle gets worse. The people descend farther. They are faithful, generally speaking, shorter periods of time. And the quality of the liberator God sends goes downhill, case after case. There are those six cycles. So there are six judges, six liberators in those cycles. And then there are six other liberators that that are just briefly mentioned that we have very few details about in this particular case when they served idols god delivered them into the hand of an idol worshiping king when they cried out to the lord god delivered them through othniel caleb's younger brother and also caleb's son-in-law and they had rest for 40 years and then they repeated the cycle this pattern with Othniel is probably the high point of this deliverance cycle in the book of Judges. It's a very, um, it's probably the most complete pattern in the book, and Othniel is probably the best judge they had. He was a very good man. You can read about him earlier in the book of Judges and also in the book of Joshua. He was a man of faith and trust in the Lord who'd already demonstrated that. And so God gave them a high-quality deliverer. He delivered them, and they had rest for a period of time. And the thing that I want us to think about from the standpoint of this first cycle is that when they served idols and abandoned the Lord, and God delivered them into the hand of an oppressing nation, he was really just recognizing what had already happened to him. Because when they abandoned God and started into sin, they were already enslaved in sin. And so as a natural consequence, they were enslaved to a foreign king. Sin is slavery. And every time we abandon God and go away from him and we start serving other gods, no matter what they are, even if they are the gods of greed and success, We become a slave. We actually end up losing our own self-government and we serve those other gods. And when we are oppressed and when we are chastised by the Lord, it is really just an outgrowth of the slavery to the other gods and to sin that we are experiencing. There is a tremendous lesson in the book of Judges for us. And it is the lesson that we need to remain faithful to the Lord and not allow 
the influences around us to cause us to bow down and serve gods besides the Lord himself. It is very difficult for us to keep pure. We are, we are in the world. We are surrounded by the world. And we must guard our hearts very carefully that we remain pure to God and don't fall into the traps that the Israelites fell into. Maybe you're serving the world this morning and you'd like to come out of that. The Lord is willing to liberate you as he sent deliverers like Othniel. He'll deliver you from sin and its slavery, but you have to be willing to come to him. Won't you do that while we stand inside?